You're listening to episode 15 of season 13 for day 97 of 2019. Hi everyone, my name's Klaatu. This is the New World Order. We have a lot to get through, as always. So let's get started. First off, um, I'm going to take a little bit of re reader's feedback, be or not reader feedback, uh, listener feedback, that's you. And I'm going to read email from you. Possibly not you personally, but someone very much like you. And the first one is going to start out with Ronald, who was talking about the TAR command previously, said that he tried it again, tried some TAR GZ and I think BZ tests, and just didn't get quite the same results, and was a little bit disappointed. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say that my tests, you know, this is not a coordinated effort, this is not scientific at all, but my, my tests have actually been pretty good. Not necessarily fantastic in all cases, but they have been really positive. And the theory here was that BZ2 and GZ were able to compress greater amounts than ZIP because of their ability to treat the entirety of a TAR archive as one big file, and so it could sort of toss out more than you can if you're trying to compress individual files that have already been compressed. So if there's any intersection of data, then you can compress that within the TAR archive. So I don't know, I mean, I would be interested to hear from other people about random tests of this sort of thing. I tried it on, again, um, JPEGs and PNGs, and I think that's primarily what I was... just because that's what I happened to be compressing in the couple of moments that I, w I thought, oh, I should I should try... I should compare it with this and that. So that's, that's what I've been testing, is just whenever I'm compressing something as a BZIP2, I try to also compress it as a zip, and then I compare the sizes. So far, I've not had any unpleasant surprises. Next up is from Ingerard, in, in, no, sorry, Ingerand, Ingerand de Rochefort. Um, and he says that I started listening to your episode on GitOpt in the car, and blah blah blah. Coming home, I had to sit down, take a look, because as far because so far, I always refrained from using get opts, note, at the, note the S at the end, because it lacks support for long options. I was surprised to find that there is also a get opt command, without the S, which does support long options, and I started comparing the two versions. While searching, I came across statements actively discouraging the use of get opt, without the S, and he cites a stack exchange flame war on the subject, uh, and I say flame war because that if you look at the page, and I'll try to remember to paste this link into the show notes, you'll see what I mean. And he says, I looked at my own scripts again and compared the self-written argument parsing code to code that results from the use of either git opt and git opts. To tell you the truth, I didn't find that much... Uh, I didn't find uh, his... You know, he's saying, I didn't find my scripts much longer or clumsier. I think I'll stick with manual parsing, but would be interested in hearing your thoughts. Yeah, that's a um, an interesting... That's a really good point. Um, I think that... I was attracted to Git Opt, well, number one, because it was in line to be covered for the show, so I had to talk about it. But the the second reason I think I was attracted to it was because of a, a hope that it would treat arguments more, w with greater sanity. That is to say, you could uh, maybe 
play it a little bit faster and looser with spaces in file names and that sort of thing. And what I have found, I don't know exactly why I thought that, but I, what I have found whilst looking at my own scripts, thinking maybe I should check, should port these over to GitOpt. And what I've found is that, yeah, um, you, you really just have to be ever vigilant in how, when you are writing a script, ever vigilant in how you treat options, how you grab them from the, the command, the, the input line, and and start parsing them. Because if you do it wrong, then everything falls apart. You have to encapsulate all of those, all of those arguments, all of the things that you get in. You have to encapsulate them very carefully with quotes and curly braces and everything you can do to capture it as exact as, exact as it was input for you. And GitOpt doesn't actually have any special magic for that. And so I think the, the one of the advantages that I felt like I was going to get from GitOpt, I've seen that it's actually it's avoidable if you just really are very careful about how you treat input. Now I have tried to discuss the Stack Overflow uh, thread in a couple of different takes, and I've hated each one of them. So it's a big topic, I think, and it's a bigger topic than I want to afford right now. So I'm just going to say that the Stack Overflow thread that Ingrand links me to is quite interesting. You should go read it. It's not necessarily enlightening. It might not teach you anything, but it will at least demonstrate that there are two really, really strong sides of a I guess an important debate, and that is portability. How far do we want to go for portability? How far can we afford to go for portability? And whose burden is it to 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 make portability possible? I think there's a there's a conversation to be had there as well. So anyway, that's that's my response, I guess. I, I think to summarize it, I was saying I probably won't use GitOpt anytime soon myself either, unless there's a really good reason for it. And and really the primary reason I, I was thinking I would use it was for better treatment of arguments, and it turns out that I think it just is up to the script writer to handle them carefully when they get them from the input line in the first place. And then last but not least, and actually this isn't last, but this is the last I'm going to take today, is from ZenFloater2. He says, I am a former human being... Uh, converted into a squirrel in the 1960s, placed in a magical forest by aliens from another planet. Very cool. Thanks for letting me know. Uh, he goes on to say that he has a following opinion about the show's audio. Uh, the audio is just fine, but I preferred the old uh, audio that I had like in season 2 and 3 over to what I have now. And that is, as he says, um, the audio which made us believe you were doing the entire show over your mom's 1955 rotary portable bedroom phone colored yellow that kind of in a ditch I'm on a narrower voice bandwidth telephone kind of audio back then you even played your music from the show over your mom's 1955 portable yellow phone and it all sounded very retro and very cool it sounded like AM radio over the internet cool anyway your audio is fine I suppose so there you go that's um that's the other that's the other side of the story which is true I mean this is all very true uh, I used to have really, really bad audio, and, and I loved it, and I still love it, and I, I would probably, I wouldn't mind having audio like that, to be honest, but at this point, it is easier for me to record into a headset attached to my computer than it is for me to uh, record to my N8, my, yeah, N800, which I still have two of now. Ken Fallon sent me his famous N800 
Nokia device, and they, they both still work. I still use them sometimes, and I just don't use them to podcast on because, it, like I say, it's just easier. The workflow is smoother for me to record into a headset to my computer, and then when I make a mistake, I can quickly, very quickly, erase it in Audacity and then keep going. That's that's the that's the appeal, to be honest. Otherwise, I record, 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 make mistakes, make mistakes, mistake. Then I have to import it into my computer and then listen to the whole thing over to find all the mistakes and so on. It just it really slows things down. So, and I'm not that into degrading audio. I'm not gonna record it at like whatever whatever quality I'm recording in right now and then crush it down to 1600 or 8000, which I did actually. I used to do that. But I'm not, I'm not that dedicated to sort of the aesthetic to to bother. So th- this is what you hear. This is this is it. That's that's you know we're not gonna we're not gonna go crazy here. This is just a a, a, a podcast that I do for fun, and uh, we'll just we'll be happy with with audio that does not hurt our ears, even if it doesn't necessarily please us on an artistic level. Okay, next up is. Linux. Yes, we're still in Linux, believe it or not, from the Slackware package set, package set, what are we in now? A still, correct? I think that's, yep, 14.2 Slackware slash A. And in the in the package set A of, of the Slackware install, there is right near the bottom, tantalizingly near the bottom of the page. I mean, you just, you think, oh, cool, we're almost done. And then you look at the Linux package and you realize... We're nowhere near done. So Linux has a bunch of little applications inside of it that we use every day, possibly, uh, or that get used for us every day. And um, and we're, we're talking about each and every one. Now, we did get through all of the, unless I'm mistaken, we got through all of the bin utilities, everything in the bin directory. That was dmessage, find mount, get opt, Host name, kill, list block, more mount, mount point, set term, U mount, and WDCTL. So now we're in the SBIN folder, and the first one in SBIN is ADJ Timex. That's ADJ TIMEX, and that is to display or set the kernel time variable. This program gives you raw access to the kernel time variables. Anyone may print out the time variables, but only the super user may change them. So this is just straight from the man page, and it's actually quite well written, so I'm just going to keep going. Your computer has two clocks. There's the hardware clock that runs all the time, and the system clock that runs only while the computer is on. Normally, hwclock-hctosys should be run at startup to initialize the system clock. The system clock has much better precision, approximately one USEC, but the hardware clock probably has better long-term stability. So this man page goes on to explain a little bit that there are three, technically three ways that you could maintain the time, the, the clock of your system. One is the NTPD daemon, network time protocol. The other is HW clock. And then the the final sort of last draw, I think, is ADJ Timex. I think most people would would just I think we all use NTPD, whether you know it or not. 
And I don't want to go into NTPD right now because that's surely something that we'll go over later when we get to NTPD. But that's the, the typical one because we're all online now. Why wouldn't you use NTPD? But another one is HW clock, which again, we won't get into right now because we'll get into it when we get into it. And so then the, the final one that they mention is ADJ Timex, and this is a kernel time setting. You can see this setting by using the dash dash print option to the command. Now, mine is located in SBIN. My path does not include SBIN, so I have to type in slash SBIN slash ADJ Timex, and then dash dash print. And I get a bunch of information back, and I'm just going to kind of zero in on the, the one I more or less know, which is the raw time. And that gives me a pretty long value. It's 155417646S. So those are the seconds, obviously. And then there's a little bonus value here, 171431US. And those are that's a fraction of a second, which uh, in this case is, is all the way down to 171431. So if I... If I Grab this whole number from 155417646071431 and I put it into a command such as date dash dash date equals quote and then the at symbol and then the number. So I'll just middle click to get that number in there and then close single quote. Or it doesn't have to be a single quote, but whatever. Um, then I hit return and it tells me it's Tuesday, April 2nd, 164100 NZ. Uh, DT 2019. So in other words, the value that I got from the kernel just now from ADJ Timex is the epoch time, the, the, the seconds since the beginning of the Unix epoch. And when I translated it with the date command, it confirmed that that many seconds from the Unix epoch resolves to pretty much right now. Uh, I can confirm that it is, in fact, the 92nd day of the year, 2019, at around 1635 or whatever I said the time the time resolved to, 1644. So, so great, that works. Uh, my clock is correct, I guess. Now, let's go back to man ADJ timex. You wouldn't want to use this probably for for real. I mean, why would you? This would be a, an, an arduous way to set your time. You'd have to become root or use sudo every time you turn your computer on and then adjust the computer by some value that, that who knows what kind of value that is. So obviously network protocol, network time protocol is the, the way to go. But it is, it is, this is a, this is a way to do it. And there are some other command or some other options here that you could, that you can play around with, I guess, if you wanted to. I would be careful playing around too much with this. Uh, if you if you screw up too much, if you screw with time too much in in your computer, then the computer starts to make logical or, or to catch logical logic problems, such as you're asking me to commit to get a file that was created in the future. Uh, I can't do that. That sort of thing. So you don't really want to mess around too greatly with with the the system clock I would I would say that that wouldn't be the greatest idea but there is a fun little option here that you should try because it's it's just it's good clean fun really so as a slash sbin slash adj timex dash dash watch it's the word watch or just dash w if you like short short options but if you hit 
return after that, then it says, please press enter when you know the time of day. And so you can grab a clock that you truly, truly trust and watch the seconds tick by. And when you feel like you've got the the correct time, like the most correct time, then you hit enter. And it tells you, okay, system time when when you pressed enter was 1647.00. What was the time according to your reference in NZDT? Well, obviously it was exactly, I mean, that's why I hit enter. So I'm going to put in 1647.00 because that was exactly the, the correct time. And then hit return. And it says that... Um, the reference time is that, make time returns the time of that, reference time, system time, it shows the difference of 0 0.980 seconds. Uh, how big could the error be in this in seconds? Uh, that's almost a full second, really, so I'm going to put one. And it won't let me reset anything because I'm not pseudo. I, I'm not root or anything. So, But that, that's a fun one to try because it feels like a game, even though it's not. But really, obviously, ADJ Timex is not really the... It's a, I, I think that they probably list it in the as the last method of maintaining your clock because it would be, it would be a last resort. All right, next up is Ageti or Agetti, or Agetti. And Agetti is an alternative Linux Getty, and Getty is, um, is what it's called, the, the TTY port. So when you hit, for instance, Alt-Control-Sum-F key, on, on a lot of systems, F1 is where your graphical display lives. Alt-Control-F1 is where your graphics are. On older systems, or traditionaler systems, it's F7. I don't know why it was ever F7. Maybe just because traditionally there were six TTY sessions or screens available for you, just by default. So then when they came out with the graphics, they figured, well, let's put it on the next one, which would be 7. Maybe to them that made sense. I would think that they would still made more sense to move that to the to the first, because then the the exception is at the beginning, and the normal things can go on forever. But that would have probably broken a lot of expectations, so maybe they were reticent to do that. Anyway, what that is when you boot a computer without a graphical interface, what you're seeing in the end is a TTY session. We sometimes call it a, a text console or just a console. Sometimes you might even call it a terminal, although not so much because terminals usually imply that there's some kind of... I mean, in modern times, it's it's there's an emulation happening. It's a terminal emulator. The, the console, the, the TTY session that you, that you see when you hit Alt-Control-F1 or F2 or F3 or, or whatever... I usually tell people to hit F uh, control alt control alt F3 because that way that's kind of a safe one. It's like it's right in the middle. It, there's probably there's very little chance that your graphical session is running on F3 or the the screen that F3 takes you to. So those are those are TTYs and that that stands for teletype. 
is is where that came from because in the old days of computing the output was sent to some thing that could print and so when they came out with these monitors that could print output they figured the the equivalent i guess or or maybe the the thing that that just naturally was getting the signal sent to slash dev slash tty was now a monitor was now a screen and so it became that became the output device it was just the tty device and in fact you can see that if you if you do a, a ls slash dev slash tt and then hit tab a couple of times uh, mine actually says would you like to see 101 possibilities sure why not then there's tty session 0 1 10 11 12 13 14 and so on the the point is that the the, the way that that the reason that you get a login prompt when you turn on your computer and you don't have a graphical interface installed the reason that you see anything at all like text a text prompt at all for you to log in is because a tty program is running and in true open source and linux fashion there are a couple of different ones available now we've already actually talked about one called getty-ps you may or may not remember that from it was still in the a package series because that's what we've been in since i've started this but it was way back obviously in the g section so you may not remember it, but we did talk about that. Um, and if I do a PSAU, PS space AU return, I can verify that I do indeed have seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven instances of SBIN A Getty running. Um, I don't, so I, I'm, I'm assuming that I'm actually not running anything called Getty. PS, or I think the other one was UUGetty. Yeah, I'm not getting anything back from a pgrep on those. So anyway, looks like I'm running a Getty. Now there are others though. There are yet other Gettys out there, and I've I've run in Getty, I've run Getty, I've run a Getty apparently. So there you go. Those are that's what the Gettys do, and it's um, kind of fun to hack around on the Getty systems because. They, they're there, and you never really think of them as a program until you realize, oh my gosh, they are a program, and they're being launched by something. What are they being launched by? Well, a lot of that early stuff when you first boot your computer, it's being launched by your init daemon, right? The thing that initializes all of the things that happen on your computer before, before you can step in and tell it what to do. So if on Slackware, this is pretty easy to do. It might be less less obvious on a system d uh, computer because you'll you'll kind of it'll be different it won't be all in one place but i mean you can poke around on there too and you'll you'll find the target that that governs the getty system but for this i'm just going to do or maybe i don't know maybe is getty rolled into system d now is that part of system d i honestly don't know i haven't looked at system d carefully enough lately um so on on a traditional system, you you can go to init tab and and look at what happens when when the computer initializes when it inits. So I'm just going to open it up in Emacs here, init tab. So here I've got the default run level. It's good. I've got system sysinit. That's RC stuff. Here's a shutdown, power fail. Okay. Ah, here we go. 
there are the standard these are the standard console login Gettys in multi-user mode and there are uh, six of them C1 one, two, three, four, five, respawn, SBIN, a Getty, no clear, 38400, TTY1 Linux. And it goes on like that down to TTY6. I don't know how far into init tab I should go. It probably doesn't hurt to talk a little bit about it. I'm sure it'll come up later as well, but it's just kind of, it's worth mentioning that, that the syntax here is that we've, we've got these, these TTYs and they are, they're starting in in all of the in all of the modes available one two three four five that would make sense for them to start so it wouldn't make sense for a tty to start on a reboot it wouldn't make sense for a tty to start on a halt signal so that's zero and six on 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 slackware so that's that's how it's configured and then there's this other there's this other thing called respawn and that means that if it if it quits if it fails for some reason the computer knows the init system knows to respawn that thing and that's a that's an important part of this because you wouldn't want to have something crash and then and then have no way to get it back now getty can be a little bit it can be configured in in some way which which uh gives you some options that that maybe Maybe you shouldn't use. Maybe you should use. It kind of all depends. But believe it or not, I've had the occasion to to use. I think it was a Getty, maybe something like it. Anyway, uh, such that there was an automatic login. And if you do a man of a Getty, you'll see that the dash dash auto login or just dash a if you're into short options will it will allow you to define a username for someone to automatically log into a computer without a password. Like, no kidding. It just, it, it takes, it takes a username, and when you turn on your computer, your computer is up and running. It is, you're logged in. You don't have to type in anything. Seems crazy, right? Well, I mean, this is, of course, separate than your GUI login, so keep that in mind. And the time that I've used this little trick was on a Raspberry Pi because I needed the Pi to serve as more or less as a kiosk. I was going to, I, I plugged it in and I needed it to, to, to boot up and I needed services to start and I needed it to accept key presses from a, an external device. And those key presses were not expected to be the login information. In other words, there was no screen attached to this Pi. So there was this external device that you were gonna start pressing buttons on and you you would expect the pi to respond to those you wouldn't expect it to assume that you are logging into to the computer the computer should have already started the little program that was written should have already started and indeed that was the expectation that was the requirement and the answer was to go into the it was a it was fedora on a pi so it was i went into system d wrote a target i think or a service or something or another and configured it such that when when a getty started it was started with the dash dash auto login option with i think it was root or something crazy like that and i felt ridiculous doing it i just thought it was absolutely the craziest thing i'd ever done because i just thought everything i've ever heard me is telling me that i should not be doing this but i mean it was an appliance it was it was a kiosk display model thing that that was running was running a a, a you know, a work of uh, something, a kiosk that people would interact with, 
and and that was it. It wasn't wasn't online. It wasn't there. There was no monitor. It was it was part of a larger system, and it needed to act like an embedded system. Is basically what it turned into. There's also a cheroot option. It's dash dash cheroot, so that you can have it change directory to a specific place upon login. There's a lot of option really for for login the the login pro- process in fact and now the login process is governed by at least by default according to this man page is slash bin slash login so that's yet another application that's a different program entirely so a lot of the options within a getty rely or expect rather a a login program and so there is actually somewhere in here there's a thing where you can override what login program it it calls to, or you know, it utilizes. I, I can't find it. Oh, there it is, right here. No, that's not it, actually. Dash dash login, dash dash skip login. That's not the one though. Ah, dash dash login dash program. Invoke the specified login program instead of slash bin slash login. So, um, and and there are lots of different reasons you might be hacking around with your a getty your a getty configuration. You may have some kind of weird non-standard uh, login process like the one that they give here in the man page one that asks for a dial-up password or that uses a different password file perhaps or again as i did maybe you're using a getty to to serve as just a a thing to get you into the computer and then and and let some kind of system daemon launch and can you know be controlled by an external device who knows that's why you would be messing around with a Getty, I think, unless you had reason again to change out Gettys entirely. Maybe you don't want a Getty to be the thing that gets started when you start your computer, and now you know at least on Slackware where you can change that, which is a knit tab, and on any other system, uh, you'll have to just find out where your your init system is being configured or is being controlled, and then change things there. Next on the list is block discard, or BLK discard. It is um, really simply, it's a program to erase, or, or to to clear a drive. So it, it, I'll go to the man page, it says it pretty succinctly. Block discard, discard sectors on a device. So it's used to discard device sectors. This is useful for solid state drives, uh, SSDs, and thinly provisioned storage. Unlike FS trim, this command is used directly on the block device. So the way that you invoke this, and I'm not going to do it, is you point it at a device, a block device, and tell it to block discard, and by default it discards all blocks on the device. And then you can use options to, to, to modify that default behavior. But in other words, and it says this in the man page in big bold letters, warning all data in the discarded region on the device will be lost. That means it, it erases the data. And I think that it exists, and I'm a little bit fuzzy on the specifics here, I think it exists because this is a quicker and I guess cleaner way to to just zero out a drive than a lot of the other options. Now, I haven't actually used it. I've never really needed to to take advantage of this, so I I don't have any data on it whatsoever. All I know is what I've read online and what the man page tells me. And it seems that some of the other sort of options are using DD. For instance, DD IF equals dev 0, OF to your device, your block device. You're overwriting it with a bunch of zeros. Uh, You could do 
HD Parm. There's a um, we we've already covered that I think, but there's an option in there to to clear out a device or to to clear out a disk. Uh, you could you know people say oh well you could just install something over the device and people other people say well that's not good enough because you're not really clearing out the blocks and so on. Once you start going down the path of how do I erase data, you get into into serious paranoia very very quickly because there are just so many hacks apparently on getting to, on get, getting data back from a hard drive. So it's it's a lot of fun to to experiment with all the different ways you can lose data on purpose, which of course never works to your advantage. It seems when you lose data on accident, but that's block device, or or rather no, that's not block device. That's block discard. Another one is block ID, and this is uh, again in sbin, so I have to use it uh, with sbin prefixing the command, but it returns the block ID of devices that are attached to your system. So I just executed it as a normal user, and I've just executed it as a root user. Same information comes back, and the information is that it provides you the UUID and the part UUID of partitions of a drive. So here's dev sda1, and it tells me that the UUID is A75900C4-2D, and so on. And then the type is swap, and the part UUID is 4E6B, and so on. So this is important because devices... New, newer systems that that read that that interact with with drives very frequently interact with their unique identifier. In fact, if I do, uh, I'm going to go into my root user here, my root tab here, and do an uh, cat on Etsy fs tab, and I'm going to bet incorrectly that at least one of my entries is based on the UUID of the device. Uh, and no, apparently not. Not on this computer, not on this system. That's interesting. I could have sworn that was true. But anyway, um, a lot of times you'll see that in, in your FS tab. That, that, that in order to identify a device or in, in order to, to detect that a device has been mounted or, or how it should be mounted rather, it, it, it specifies it by the UUID. It's kind of ugly. It's, it's, it's unwieldy. But it is independent of other information. So, for instance, if if a drive gets mounted on SDA today, but ends up on SDB tomorrow, then that UUID is going to be the same no matter what. And that's really, really useful. And in fact, I, I leveraged this, not that program, but the, the concept of a UUID, with my attach-up program. When you install, or when you when you invoke attach up to define a drive to back up it identifies it by its uuid there's a python thing that looks at the uuid for you and, and returns it taps into udisks i think and speaking of udisks and block devices and that sort of thing the next one is block dev and this is actually a really handy little application to know about and it's one of those that I don't feel like it gets mentioned a whole lot, but if we do sbin block dev, I guess let's do dash dash help. Oh, and I should mention that it is actually block dev. So unlike blkid and blk discard and all those other things, this one spells out block. That's not confusing at all. Block dev, b-l-o-c-k dev dash dash help shows you a bunch of options which aren't aren't terribly self-explanatory at first, but if you look at their descriptions, you kind of get a feel for it. So there's get size in 512-byte sectors, set read-only, set read-write, set 
uh, read only, get discard zeros, support status, get logical block sector size, and so on and so on. So in other words, this is a, um, well, let's see what it calls itself, so that, because usually the man page one-liners are pretty, pretty good. Block dev, call block device IO controls from the command line. And as anticipated, that's, yeah, that, that's pretty good. I like that. So for instance, we could say, we could do a um, block dev dash dash git sz for git size of slash dev slash sda. And there it returns 58605331168. You do the math. Uh, we could do, for instance, a git physical si physical block sector size. That's git pbsz is the argument for that one. I'll just middle click here on, again, slash dev slash sda. It's 4096, and that is handy to know because now I know the block size of this of this drive. There's another one that I saw somewhere online. It was looking at the read-ahead capabilities. I think it was git ra. Yeah, that would make sense, actually, read-ahead. So, or here's, um, so git, git file system read-ahead, so fra slash dev slash sda. That's 256. And I wonder if there is just a git raw. Yeah, there is, but it's the same value, 256. So, yeah, you can get all kinds of information about your hard drive, like a physical device, this way. And it's kind of fascinating to see. Whether or not I'm actually going to do anything with it is a whole different story, because frankly, I don't know enough about performance and hard drive alignment and things like that to feel like I should go mucking around with settings. There are options in here, though, where you can set certain things about a drive with with block dev. I have not tried that, probably won't anytime soon, not until I have a spare computer about which I really, truly just don't care that much. So, next up is CF Disk. I feel like CF Disk is probably fairly well known. I could be wrong, but I feel like it's probably fairly well known. It's it's a disk formatting application. Now you may know F disk. You may have heard of F F disk more than CF disk, but CF disk I I certainly know quite well because it is one of the two options. Two options? Yeah, I think one of the two options. Well, three now, but it's one of those options in the Slackware installer that that you are given when you are told, okay, now go get your hard drive ready for a Slackware install by creating partitions and so on. Now, when I first started with Linux, and I had no clue what I was doing, I had I I, I knew in principle what a partition was vaguely. But I, I really didn't understand how it was how it was done or defined, what a block size was, what a sector was, anything like that. So it was very, very new to me, and the last thing that I wanted to do was try to figure out FDisk. So I used CFDisk, and it was a lot easier, because CFDisk is kind of the, I guess you could call it the nano of disk partitioners. If you've ever, if you've never looked at it, you, you should, you should take a look at it. You should try it. I, th I, I guess you probably have it on your system, actually, because you almost certainly have Util Linux on your system. So CFDisk, it opens up. Now, actually, this is, um, I think I'm getting, I want to say I'm getting CGDisk. 
I could be wrong, but that looks like CG disk to me. Nope, that was CF disk. Okay, interesting. I guess it's gotten prettier over the years. CF disk is is an interactive interface, which in real life I, I don't tend to use it quite as much as I used to. I don't feel. Although having said that, actually I kind of do. Like during a Slackware install, I I will not bother with F disk. I just won't. It just doesn't make any sense to me to do it that way. Whereas CG disk or CF disk, it it's right there. Everything's you see the drive, you see the partitions you're making. It's it, I don't know. For me, it it seems very comfortable. Of course, that might be also because it's semi nostalgic. It is so familiar to me that to me and a Slackware install involves CF disk. But in real life, I generally use parted on the on the in the terminal, not G parted, just parted. I think I feel like that's actually the command to use because you don't have to go into any kind of interactive mode. Bizarrely, my complaint about FDisk is that it's an interactive mode, typically, and parted, while you can do interactive parted, you can also just type out the, the command in parted and point it at a disk and it does its thing. So anyway, in CFDisk, it opens up a screen, it takes over your terminal, you have entries for your, your well, you so you're looking at one drive, right? So one screen is one drive, and then you can make partitions, and you can there's a little menu at the bottom, and you just kind of arrow through them. You can delete a partition, you can quit, you can set the type of the partition, you can get help, you can sort the partitions that you're looking at, and then you can write the specific data that you have just set. You you know the the choices that you have made, you can you can write to the the device to make them permanent. And that's a CF disk. Is there anything else to say about CF disk? I don't, I don't feel like there is. It's pretty straightforward. It's a curses-based program for partitioning any block device. The default device is dev uh, slash dev slash SDA. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty self-explanatory. It is it it very much is the 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 nano of disk partitioning. And I think sometimes that's exactly what you want. All right, I think that's that's probably as far as we should go right now. I mean, there's there's still a ton. There's like there's a screen full of um of things still left in the Sbin folder. Not a screen full, sorry. There's half a screen of things left in the Sbin folder and then there's a couple of different screens. Nope, there they are. Okay. So it's just one screen of user bin. Is there a user sbin? That's going to be the, the real question. Um, couple in user sbin, not a whole lot. So yeah, we've got we've got quite a ways to go still through util Linux, but I think this is a really good low level stuff to to learn about. Actually, a lot of these are are those weird little programs. I mean, they they are in in a lot of ways. They're they're kind of very much the, those classic Unix programs, although they're not, interestingly, super classic. Like, a lot of these are actually kind of new and exciting to me. The things that I, I, I didn't know existed, U-disk types of things, like really useful things where you can probe probe different uh, d- devices and find information about these things. Had no idea they existed, maybe, or I don't use them every day. And, and they're great to know about because they are so specific that you can really... Th- Imagine a time in the future where you'll think, oh, I need a thing to find out the the sector size of this drive. Never needed to know that in my life before, but today I need to know it. And didn't Klaatu once say that there was something that did that? And then you'll probably remember that it's in util Linux. And you'll just do a less of var log packages util Linux and find out where it is or what it is and how to use it.
So there you go. That's what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and uh, I will talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AUGcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AUGcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time.